The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. In celebration of their newly launched WCI newsstand platform, Wing Chun Illustrated is giving listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast a free one-month all-access subscription. Go to wcinewsstand.com and click the register button in the upper right corner. Use voucher code FREE4U. That's F-R-E-E, the number four, and the letter U, all caps. Don't forget to activate your account by clicking the link in the welcome message. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your hosts, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. Richter, a.k.a. the Kung Fu Genius, here for the Dudes of Kung Fu in our special series, Quarantined Conversations. So as I mentioned last time when I did the interview with uh, Sifu Vincent Benitez, Sean is kind of overwhelmed with work. He's one of these guys who, like many of us, is forced to work from home these days. Um, But unfortunately, his boss has piled on about double the amount of work that he normally has. So that's making recording new episodes with Sean a little bit challenging. However, he did tell me that his workload is lightening up and we will be recording some regular episodes soon. So I'm super excited about that. By the time this episode comes out, we should have already done our live Dudes of Kung Fu episode on our Facebook page. So um, take a look for that if you have not heard it already. And I suspect we will have more regular episodes soon. However, I think this is a great opportunity for me, one, to not have to look at Sean's face when I'm doing a podcast and also to have a chance to talk to someone else for a change. So on this episode, I feel really, truly blessed. I had the chance to talk to one of my really good friends and also a mentor of mine, Dr. Kenneth J. Dr. Kenneth J. is one of these guys who, you know, you look up to him in so many ways. You look up to him physically because he's six foot four and he looks like Thor. And that's no joke. If you guys don't believe me, go ahead and Google Kenneth J. right now. I'll wait. So when I stand next to him, I just feel like a like a very, very small child, which I mention to him probably every time I talk to him. So Dr. Kenneth Jay is someone who has an interest in martial arts, has also trained um, a number of different martial arts in his life, including Wing Chun. Uh, he's also trained at the Inosanto Academy when he goes to California. He lives in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. And he is probably uh, definitely not what one would categorize as an underachiever. So he introduced me to a number of things that have really revolutionized the way I look at my martial arts training and my fitness training. And uh, as a result, it forged a really strong relationship between the two of us. Um, And uh, I really, really cannot say enough good things about Dr. Kenneth J. He is also the guy who really got me into rowing on the Concept 2 rower, which I've talked about many times on the podcast. Cardio training is something that I think is vastly misunderstood, not just within the martial arts community, but within the general community uh, and even in the fitness community. So I wanted to bring uh, uh, Dr. Kenneth J on here to really talk about that and discuss, you know, what really is cardio training and what is it not? Uh, Because this is a huge game changer for people who are really serious about their health and obviously people who are really serious about training martial arts. He's the creator of the Row Forge app, which is 
the best companion and coach if you're really serious about doing cardio training on the rower. You basically have every type of program on there. So if you're already rowing or you need a little bit of guidance, go ahead and get the Row Forge app, which is absolutely incredible. So let's talk a little bit about Dr. Kenajay. Let me give him a proper introduction because this is definitely someone who is extremely credentialed. He's perhaps from an uh, academic standpoint, the most credentialed person we've ever had on this podcast, um, if, you can, if you can believe that, of course. So um, Dr. Kenajay holds a master's degree in exercise physiology with a specialty in cardiovascular function. He also has a PhD in sports science and clinical biomechanics, so he might know what he's talking about. He also has 20-plus years of training international and Olympic-level athletes, including current UFC fighter Nicholas Dalby, who I also had the chance to meet through Dr. Kenneth J. He's authored the book Cardio Code and created the Cardio Code and Kinetic Code certifications, of which I've done. They're absolutely phenomenal. If you're a fitness trainer or you even have some interest in these kind of topics, go ahead and do one of his certifications whenever he's in town. Uh, like I said, he's been a friend and mentor of mine for a number of years, which, you know, perhaps doesn't say anything about him, but it says a lot about me and who I like to follow. Um, and one last thing yeah, he wanted me to make sure that you guys knew, although he lives in um, Copenhagen, Denmark, he is actually currently the head of research at the Plasticity Centers in Orlando, Florida. He's also an associate professor of medical education at the University of Central Florida, an associate professor of human performance, clinical biomechanics, and the and clinical education at the Carrick Institute in Cape Canaveral, Florida. So again, it's one thing if I tell you that you might want to use the rower or you might want to do some things. It's quite something else when Dr. Kenneth J tells you. So without any further ado, let's get started. Dr. Kenneth J on the Dudes of Kung Fu. Cool. So, uh, hey, Kenneth, it's nice to see you. Uh, how, how have you been these days? Uh, I've been great. Uh, circumstances notwithstanding, it's, uh, it's crazy times, but uh, I'm doing good, healthy, and um, yeah, just trying to get stuff done. Right. Uh, do you feel that you're even busier now in these days than you were before all this stuff happened? I feel like I have twice as much work now as I did before. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard a few people uh, say the exact same thing. Um, I'm finding my, that my, uh, my schedule keeps getting rearranged. Um, but the, the thing is with my, with what I do every day is that I basically work from home. Um, and I can pretty much organize the, the day as, as I see fit. So it hasn't been that big of a change, but of course, some things are uh, impacted by the whole COVID-19 thing. Sure. Do you have a do you have a whole training setup at your house? So you're one of those people that doesn't need a gym anyway. Or what is yeah. it? Is your training schedule different now? Um, or what are you doing? Yeah, that's a good question. See, uh, back in the day when uh, when I used to do a lot of kettlebell training, I had my outdoor courage corner, uh, which was basically like a like a like a really trashy outdoor gym that was like built of whatever I had laying around and then I had some plates and a barbell and kettlebells and stuff like that uh, but I basically got rid of that because I had kids and then they needed the place for a trampoline right so I could give that up I have a rower at my office it's right behind me here um, and then I have a then I have a k-box which is uh, which is the, which is the device that allows you to do uh, heavy eccentric work uh, I have a few bells and then I have, um, that's basically it. I have a couple of sandbags and, and stuff like that. Um, so that's, uh, that's what I use. 
Nice, nice. Yeah, um, I had I have a rower as well. It's at my school. But before we went on lockdown, I drove to my school, opened up my trunk and put the rower in there because I'm like, if I'm if there's a couple of pieces of equipment that I want, the rower is definitely one of them. And uh, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit later, especially for our listeners to kind of get an idea of what um, phenomenal piece of equipment this uh simple yet very sadistic rowing machine is and why everyone needs to to get on one um before we get into that i just want to let our uh um listeners know that uh in addition to being extremely credentialed in um fitness and sports physiology all that kind of stuff you also do have some martial arts training although i i know you always like to downplay it a little bit but um maybe you can tell the audience um some of the things that you have uh, practiced yeah uh i'll be happy to uh as long as uh, nobody really challenged me to uh, to a fight then i'll be good <laughs> uh, i wouldn't want that but yes, I do have some martial arts background, and I've been been fascinated uh, with uh, with martial arts um, ever since I was a kid, basically. So I grew up watching the Bruce Lee movies. Uh, I really loved uh, also uh, the movies that uh, that Brandon uh, that Brandon made. Uh, watching those, and grew up watching American Ninja and and and, and those old school eighties eighties uh, martial arts movies, and. Um, I uh, started with uh, Shotokan Karate um, when I was eight or nine, I believe. Um, and I stayed with that for about three years. Um, and then I decided to try different things, basically. So when I was probably a few years after that, I had a, had a couple of years when it, where I didn't do any martial arts. But then when I was about 14, I started doing a little bit of Wing Chun, actually. Um, Stayed with that for a couple of years, um, trained uh, in Copenhagen. Uh, I'm in Denmark, so I trained in Copenhagen under uh, Henning Devern, right. as you probably recognize and your listeners will probably recognize. He's my, he's my elder, he's my Siheng, my, my older Kung Fu brother, so we're, it's actually from the same family, yeah. Oh, yeah, very cool. Um, tried that uh, for probably about two years or so. Uh, tried out some capoeira, um, tried out wrestling. Uh, I, I pretty much stuck with wrestling and now it's all transitioning into uh, BJJ and, and MMA and, and, and those types of, uh, those, those types of mixed, mixed stuff. Submission wrestling, kickboxing. Um, whenever I'm in, on the West Coast, uh, I try to stop by the Inosano Academy, uh, talk to a guru there. Um, and uh, our um, um, and Dr. Mark Ching, who's a friend of both of us, uh, he uh, he always makes an effort to uh, to teach me some of his uh, some of his skills whenever I'm there. So I, I like to be exposed to all these things, um, and I'm I wouldn't say on a regular basis, but quite frequently um, I also do a little bit of mixed stuff with uh, with the UFC fighter that I'm training. So. So he gets to beat me up and I get to beat him up at the gym, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's going to, I'm going to destroy him on the rower, basically. <laughs> yeah, so we have, uh, uh, luckily I was able to uh, to meet uh, Nicholas Dalby through you um, by introduction in, in Los Angeles a few years back. 
and um, it's really incredible to see his journey and to see what he's gone through. Uh, to he was in the UFC and then he was out for a bit, and now he's back in the UFC. He had an amazing win uh, in his first fight back over what was it, Alex Oliveira, which is an incredible fighter. I was in, in, in unbelievable. Um, yeah. So, what is it like? Um, you know, training with, uh, you know, as you said, he, you kick his ass on the rower, but he kicks your ass in training. So what is it, what is it like uh, on that? And when you're training with him on the martial arts side, just to give some of our listeners an idea of what it's like, the intensity that a professional fighter trains with. Oh, uh, I, I'm, 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 I think he actually turns it down all the way to very close to zero when, uh, when step, step on the mat with him, he, uh, he is, um, He's very good at uh, at making sure I don't get hurt, but he also is very good at pushing me in all the right places. Uh, I do actually believe that he only goes about ten percent or so, or five percent, when uh, whenever I wrestle with him, and even lower when we uh, hit the pads or when we spar, um, because the, the the amount of, of of speed and power that he has. Um, and the endurance for that matter, it's, 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 I'm a big guy and I'm pretty muscular, but I can't match that. Uh, I don't have a chance. So, so I, um, I, I, I have plenty to deal with when we're, uh, we're on the mat. But again, like I said, when then it's time to hit the gym, he can outwork me, but I create the programs, right? <laughs> I can make sure that his program is uh, is is, is going to be equally taxing, if not more. So, so that's that's where I can kind of get him back. Yeah. So, sp- speaking of big guy, because uh, for our listeners who don't know what you look like, um, how how tall are you? But you got to do it in feet, like like American style. <laughs> yeah. So I'm uh, I'm six four, um, and I think I was about two ten the last time you saw me. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 200 pounds now, so I'm uh, I'm a little bit leaner, but but I'm usually considered a semi big guy. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, all the photos where I'm next to you, I just feel like a child <laughs> next to a proper adult. And uh, you've even at Starbucks, I was the funniest thing when they ask you your name. You sometimes jokingly tell them Thor, and no one yeah. is gonna think twice about that. <laughs> They're like, yeah, he looks like a Thor. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I kind of like to do that. Yeah, that's so. True. So we we mentioned the rower a moment ago, and obviously the rower is probably the centerpiece of what you uh, do when you train uh, Nicholas for uh, the uh, conditioning portion. Um, there are, are a lot of misconceptions about what cardio training is, especially if you go online. You have all these Instagram celebrities selling all sorts of nonsense. You buy you buy an ebook and then a quick video, and then you're going to have six pack abs and you're going to look oiled and perfect in three weeks. Um, and I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about what cardio is. I think people think anytime they're sweating that that means that they're doing cardio. Can you explain, especially for laymen like us and people who just practice martial arts as a hobby what cardiovascular training really is and what it's not in terms of what people usually say it is like give us an idea absolutely it'll be my pleasure it's kind of one of my pet peeves actually to to dispel the myths of what is cardio and what is not cardio um actually uh, i'm also going to do a shameless plug i have a book um, it's called the cardio code, and that goes into the details about it. But in that book, 
I kind of start uh, opening up with um, with a phrase saying that if if all it takes to do cardio is to increase your heart rate when you're exercising, that means that I could also improve your cardio by scaring you into better shape. <laughs> basically, means that the misconception is is that anything that will elevate your heart rate is also gonna do be a cardiovascular stimulus, and that is a misconception. Because when we lift weights, uh, we can pick up a heavy uh, barbell or heavy kettlebells and do a bunch of squats with, with it, for instance. And that's going to elevate our heart rate. And some people can actually get to very close to maximal heart rate levels just by doing heavy squats. And then the problem arises when you start to equate that with a cardiovascular stimulus. Because that is the, the, the high heart rate is a response to the lack of oxygen in the muscles. And it actually does not stimulate the cardiovascular, cardiovascular system in any positive way. So what we're looking for when we talk about cardio training, or in the old days, as boxers used to like to refer to as road, doing road work, right? right. Uh, that basically means that, um, that you have to stimulate your heart in such a way that it starts to expand. Right, kind of like a balloon, uh, and that happens when you run, when you row, when you bike, or if you have the option of doing cross-country skiing. So basically, those four activities have an effect on the heart. So when you push the intensity, the, that will uh, make the heart kind of expand like a balloon. The thing is, is that when we lift weights, that expansion of the heart actually does not happen. What does happen, however, is because uh, when you have a load on your back or you're lifting something heavy, you have to contract all of your muscles in order to stabilize against the weight. And that means also, uh, in particular, you have to contract the muscles that surround your torso uh, and surround your heart. And what that does is that it basically restricts blood flow going back from the muscles and into the heart again. And what that does is that it actually increases the thickness of the heart wall. So basically, if you think about, if you think about um, uh, the balloon again, instead of like blowing it up so it expands, so the inside cavity gets bigger, now the thickness of the rubber, uh, balloon rubber starts to grow. And it grows inward. And that means that there is less room for blood in that inside cavity. And that actually is a negative effect of strength training or weight training on your heart. So those two are very different. Uh, you have to, basically what I go back to is if it's not running, rowing, biking, or skiing, it's not really cardio. Again, if you take a sedentary person uh, that's never done anything and you just make him, uh, make him do push-ups and pull-ups if they can or, or body weight squats, they're going to get some slight benefit on the cardiovascular system, but not on the heart. They're going to get an effect outside in the muscles. So it's really important not to confuse the, the effects that weight training creates and uh, those other four activities, what those, uh, what those create of effects. So, well, I think that's uh, a fantastic explanation. In fact, that's the explanation you gave me many years ago when I did the cardio code cert, and that's the one I tried to to tell people, but it seems that there's still a lot of pushback because, for example, in martial arts, 
uh, people think, well, what about hitting the bags? What if I hit the bags at a high level intensity? Isn't that also cardio? And it seems from what you're saying, it might be for a noob, like they might get some kind of beginning effect. Um, but it, so explain to our listeners why hitting the bag, even at a really high level of intensity, is still not necessarily cardiovascular training because they seem to not want to believe that. So the whole, uh, the whole, uh, and 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 we may have to at least scratch the surface in some physiology here in uh, in this explanation. But basically, in order to create that stimulus to the heart, well, actually, let me start a different uh, a different place. So cardio, when we say cardio, we mean cardiovascular training. Cardio means heart, right? It's 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 a Greek word, um, uh, and and it basically uh, directly translated means heart. So when we do cardio training, we're training our heart or we intend to train our heart. The way we train our heart, the way we want it to improve is that we want it to improve our stamina and our endurance. And that can only happen if we expand the heart. And that's why those four activities uh, are key in that process. Now, if we start to look at activities like hitting the back uh, or doing really... Um, uh, continuous prolonged uh, Wing Chun dummy, the Jun Fan sets, or whatever, doing it that at a high intensity. We may feel, start to feel fatigue, and we may start to breathe heavy and, and start to sweat, but the amount of active muscle mass is not to, sufficient enough to create the stimulus needed uh, to create the adaptations of the heart. So there's an element here of the amount of active muscle mass that has to be fulfilled in order for the heart to force that adaptation of that expansion of the heart. So, so the, the, one of the things is that we have to look at, we have to look at active amount of muscle mass. Then we have to look at a contraction relaxation cycle. So if you tighten your muscles really tightly and keep them tight and then relax and then tighten them again, most of the time you're under tension. That also limits the stimulus to the heart expansion. And then we have to look at basically what you could refer to as RPMs or repetitions per minute. That also has to be above a certain threshold. That may not be a problem because Wing Chun uh, guys can really throw a lot of punches in a very short, uh, short amount of time. But still, the, the lack of active muscle mass in those punches um, is, is definitely a limiting factor there. And again, also, if... If, if people are not, uh, if people get too tense, too tense and too tight in their muscles, that's also going to limit it. Um, and then again, uh, if in activities where you do stuff at a slower pace than the repetitions per minute, there's also going to be a limiting factor. So there are all these factors uh, that contribute either to uh, to this expansion of the heart or to other localized effects. So the next question that some people might be thinking when they hear this explanation is that why is it that my endurance then goes up after I've practiced whatever movement and I can stay uh, 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 keep punching the heavy bag for a longer period of time well that's all local muscle muscular adaptations because we have the heart and then we have what goes on in the muscles and in the muscles they can create uh, muscular endurance that basically means if you create a stimulus of doing a lot of intervals of heavy back punching, short rest, and then do it again. Then we create an environment in the muscles 
that forces the muscles to adapt and create more what's called mitochondria, basically. Creates more mitochondria and the muscles get better at removing the lactic acid that builds up if you go really fast. But that's a local adaptation that has nothing to do with your heart. Got it. That makes that that makes a lot of sense. Um, because yeah, I think people do feel well, if I do heavy bag training regularly, I get better at it, I'm able to do it longer. And then of course, they're going to equate that to cardio training. But I think it's very important for people to realize that these are two, two different systems, essentially, that are working there. Um, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's really other people, I think, think that, well, what if I just lift weights faster? And I guess that has the same problem of, in terms of the intensity and the amount of contraction versus relaxation, or, or why is lifting weights faster, not really a way to do cardio, so to speak? Uh, that's also a great question. And that actually, that whole phrase of, You've probably seen those uh, memes where it says there's a conversation between two people, and 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 one guy asks the other, "Hey, what do you do for uh, what do you do for training? Uh, I lift weights. Then what do you do for cardio training? I lift weights faster." Usually, <laughs> and that uh, that meme is actually what got me to write the cardio code book because I was like, "Oh my god, that's so wrong!" And I'm gonna write a book about it. And it's kind of the thing someone's wrong on the internet or basically the entire internet in this case is, is, is basically wrong. The thing is, is that when we lift weights, is that we're usually under pretty significant load, which means that our muscles have to contract in order to stay upright and to support the weight. Already there, we're creating a, an environment within the body where the muscles are not getting, getting any oxygen that's being pumped by the heart. Because it, a contracted muscle, when a muscle contracts, it basically restricts the blood flow to it. And when, it's, uh, when it then relaxes, then the blood can enter it. But if most of the time, when we're actually doing a set of, let's say, 10 squats, most of the time, we're actually contracting against the load, which means that the muscles are not actually getting any oxygen in there. At the same time, what's happening is, is that, is that, um, the blood flow going back to the heart is also restricted, again, because of the what's called the intrathoracic pressure, the pressure that you have to keep in your abdomen and in your chest in order to support the weight. So that restricts blood flow going back to the heart. And if there's no blood being pumped back to the heart, then what is going to make it expand? Well, nothing. There's nothing there to make it expand. Even if you could do like really fast squats, we've probably all seen the uh, seen the the YouTube clips of CrossFitters doing like air squats where they just use body weight and go up and down. Um, even in such cases, it's going to be very hard to create any significant uh, effects on that heart expansion simply because uh, the the time under tension or the time you spend being in a contracted state is going to be so high and you're going to restrict the blood uh, flowing back um, back to the heart as well because again you have to do some level of of of, of bracing if you will uh, some level of of, of 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 holding your breath either fully or just semi holding your breath and that is enough to restrict the blood flowing back to the heart and again, if there's no blood going back to the heart, there's nothing to force that expansion. Got it. 
So you talk about four exercises essentially being kind of the gold standard for cardio. We have running, we have biking, we have rowing and cross-country skiing. Now of those, clearly uh, you're um, you like you like the rower. You like uh, specifically the Concept Two rower. You got me onto it. It's been an absolute life changing thing for me. Um, perhaps let people know why maybe a rower is one of the more efficient ways, um, or 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 why you're a little bit more. And I don't know if I'm putting words into your mouth. Why you might be more partial to the rower compared to other forms, um, or maybe it just might seem that way. Well, I, I, I may be a little biased uh, towards the rower, but I'm. I, I think, uh, to be honest, I think I'm biased for a couple of good reasons. Well, number one is that rowing actually activates more than 85% of your total uh, musculoskeletal system. So when you row, there's a push from the legs, which is basically your quadriceps and everything in your lower body that pushes off. And then your back is being activated, and then your arms are, um, uh, are what finishes each stroke. And then going forward again, to have all this optimum um, uh, activation, you actually also, if you look at activation of different muscles groups in the upper body, um, then you'll see rowers have high degrees of activation in their uh, pectorals, their chest muscles. Uh, so basically, the amount of active muscle mass is way up there, right? Uh, and that's one of the things, the key things that's necessary in order to stimulate the heart to do this expansion. You need a lot of muscle mass to be act, uh, activated. The next thing is, is that what I like with the rower is that it actually also requires um, muscular force. So you have to generate a lot more muscular force per stroke in order to create the same amount of work, right? So this is how I usually compare it. This is if you if, if you for instance and 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 you know because we've talked about this and you've uh, attended the, the cardio coach certification uh, several times um, is that I talk about the amount of work being done and this is also one of the reasons why I like the rowing machine is because it's basically an ergometer that tells you exactly how much work you're doing every single second and that's what called watts um, the display on the rowing machine will tell you how many watts you're generating. And watts are energy, right? So if you want to generate higher amounts of watts, that means you have to work harder. Now, the thing is, is that let's say we sit on the rower and we uh, start to row and we generate 200 watts. And we do that with 20 strokes per minute, right? That's the rower. If we do the equivalent amount of work on a, on a bike's bicycle, for instance, we do 200 watts of work on a bike. Our RPMs on the bike may be 60 or 80 or maybe even 100 repetitions per minute, right? So if we compare 20 reps per minute on the road to 100 rounds per minute on the bike, but for the same work, that basically means that for each stroke, each of the 20 strokes that we take on the rower, we have to generate much more force uh, because we only have 20 strokes to do it per minute, whereas the bike will have a, maybe 100 strokes or, or 100 repetitions per minute. So we can, we can actually, we have to generate five times as much force per stroke on the rower than what the person on the bike does. So what that tells us is that 
for each stroke, there has to be a higher force output. And if there's a higher force output, it stimulates more strength. It, requir it requires more strength and it activates more of the explosive and the fast muscle fibers in the body. And this is very evident if you look at rowers' bodies compared to cyclists or runners. Rowers are usually very muscular and quite lean, whereas, uh, and also in their upper body. Whereas, take a road cyclist, they have very well-developed legs, but they don't really have anything in their upper body. And if we compare the thigh muscles on a rower and a cyclist, they're also very different, where the rower will be much more explosive and still basically just as enduring, but they will have much more explosive power simply because it takes more power, more force per stroke to generate an equivalent amount of work. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so to get on, obviously, within a 45-minute podcast, we can't go into programming and all this kind of stuff, which is why I recommend people get your uh, book, The Cardio Code, uh, if they want more information on that or take one of the certs. But maybe you can give us an idea, for example, uh, for training a UFC fighter, um, a standard MMA fight, three rounds, five-minute rounds, there's a one-minute break, championship fight is five rounds. So let's say you're training a fighter to go for those three rounds, they got to be able to go for five minutes with a one-minute break. What kind of training protocol, like a, a basic outline, we don't have to go into all the brutal detail, but what would be like a, a, a basic progression building up to that? And also, do you then taper off at the very end to make sure that they're not overtrained? Like, what, how do those things work? I'm always very fascinated how they put them together. There's so much detail that we could go into with this. Um, if we if we look at what I do with uh, with Nicholas, uh, for instance, is that uh, we have uh, certain periods where we train uh, when we work on uh, basic uh, strength and explosiveness. Then we transition that uh, a little bit into more faster, more powerful movements but still without taxing him in terms of fatigue or anything. As we approach probably about six weeks out of a fight, we take, we have to spend those last remaining six weeks leading up to the fight developing his, um, his, uh, his ability to, to, to keep going, to deliver high force outputs, but do it while he's basically puffing and puffing and trying to catch his breath. Right, so that's what I call tolerance training because fighting is very basically very anaerobic whenever you engage, but in order to last three times five minutes, that's fifteen minutes only separated by a couple uh, a couple of breaks, uh, lasting only one minute. So it's actually also aerobically demanding, right? So what I do in order to prepare him for that is basically doing simulation. So I construct workouts that usually are um, three to four rounds of maybe five or six minutes, very similar to what he's gonna be exposed to. But the rules are that we have to tax uh, the major muscle groups. Uh, so we, I require him to, to do a lot of heavy explosive lifting in those, uh, those rounds. But I want him to do it while he's basically really taxed and his chest is pounding and he's trying to catch his breath. So usually what will happen is that for each round, the first minute will be a 
basically an all-out row. And then he'll have maybe, as an example, we could go directly from the rower. He could go into doing, um, could go into doing um, uh, trap bar deadlifts, for instance, that are fairly heavy, or throwing a wrestling dummy, like doing suplexes with a wrestling dummy, for one minute. Then from there, we could go into doing maybe some uh, some kettlebell cleans and presses. Um, and then we'll probably do some medicine ball slams into the ground. And then I'll hit him with another minute um, to, to really ramp up his heart rate and to make him uh, breathe heavy, uh, training that ability to get in a lot of oxygen. And then he gets a little bit of rest and then we'll do it over again. So at the beginning and the end, and the end at every round will basically tax him heavily with uh, with something that elevates his lactate. So basically, what happens? The reason why we, we why I choose to finish each round with basically at one minute all out rowing is that he's not going to be able to recover from that in the minute that we're resting, right? So he'll come into the next round being already fatigued, and now he has to do another minute of all out rowing to start that round. So there's a huge, it's almost an exponential increase in fatigue, in muscular fatigue. And the, the whole idea is, is that the better his cardiovascular system is to begin with, the better his aerobic base is, um, the better he'll be able to handle the recovery during those intensive three times five minute rounds. So, while, so, so basically, before we reach the six weeks out phase, we spend a lot of time building his aerobic base in training as well. So, so before leading up to those six weeks, we have he's been rowing many, many kilometers um, and, uh, and spent quite a long time on the rowing machine just to be able to prepare for that. Um, and the reason we do it this way and the reason why we don't uh, spend his entire training only doing like bike-specific stuff is that it takes the body about four to six weeks uh, before we max out his anaerobic tolerance capacity. So after about six weeks of really hard intensive training, maybe doing this three, four, five times a week, um, then he's gonna be maxed out on his ability both to produce lactate and to tolerate that, uh, that lactate as well. And uh, trying to push longer than that will actually end up being de detrimental. So that's why we have this uh, this six-week window at the end. Got it. Got it. Wow. That's incredible. And I think and, and anyone who has not used the rower before, they might think, oh, like a rower, one minute all out. You know, you don't know. I remember the first time. Uh, I went on the rower and I think the first thing you made me do was the 2k all-out test That was literally the first thing that I did and I, I get on that thing after some basic instruction And you know, you have to sprint those first hundred meters or so and I'm sprinting. I'm going like, okay oh, oh, oh. And then suddenly once you get past that sprint and you have to get into it kind of a nice really strong stroke and you look and you go I still have 1800 left to go. And then you're, and it's almost, and what I feel, I mean, regardless of the fact that it's extremely physically fatiguing, especially when you're doing all out stuff, um, there's a mental component. And I think that that's what really uh, draws me the most to it because it's like martial arts. It's like your ability to master your mind and to endure. And there's always a moment when you go like, okay, you can do 
you go a little lighter on the next hundred meters. And then there's the other voice going like lighter. You, you're going to, you're going to be done in three minutes. Why don't you just push it now and then stop your complaining. Right. So you, you constantly have this, like the kind of the, the, the angel and the demon on your shoulders fighting for it. And, and it, it's, it, I think it's an ex a tremendous way to train your mental fortitude, which is also very important when you're doing, um, you know, especially for competitive fighters. Um, and I think if you row regularly, there's really nothing you can't put your mind to because it's, it's probably one of the most difficult things to do. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's actually, it's, it's quite well known in the, in the, um, in the training industry and especially uh, training elite athletes and Olympic athletes is that um, the Olympic sport of rowing, the 2K, is actually considered the hardest event of them all. And it's basically because it's what requires the most of you, both in terms of what you described right there, but also in terms of they actually has, they have to have the ability to tolerate tremendous levels of pain. Because what happens um, a, a 2K row on the water in a single scholar, that will take maybe six, six and a half minutes for an Olympic class rower, right? But they will actually row, it, it, it will take about 30 seconds or so, maybe a minute, and then they'll be very close to their maximal heart rate. And then they'll stay within one, two, three beats of their maximal heart rate for the remaining part of the race. That's five minutes. But what's also interesting is that as, as they push the cardiovascular system, lactate levels start to increase as well, right? And lactate levels are basically what is causing uh, a huge pH level drop in your bloodstream. So that means that your body becomes increasingly acidic. Your blood and your tissue becomes acidic. At one point, uh, acidity can become uh, even fatal. Right, and it's what makes people stop and throw up, basically. Now, the interesting thing is, is that an Olympic level rower will sit at a lactate level concentration, meaning a pH level that's so low that if we copied that and, and, and took that blood and put it into a person that hasn't been trained, that person would probably die, right? And they stay there for five or six minutes. And that's, the, that, 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 that's so incredible, right? So uh, to compare, uh, I used to train another, he's actually a, a UFC fighter as well. Um, and he's a former Greco-Roman wrestler. He took silver in Beijing. Um, about Mark Madsen? In, in, um, he took silver in Greco-Roman in, uh, in Rio. Uh, it's Mark Madsen. You've probably seen him as well. Um, and if you dig up an old copy of my, uh, my book, Viking Warrior Conditioning with the Kettlebell Stuff, you'll see an interview with him uh, at the end of it when he was still a Greco-Roman wrestler. Now, now, the thing is, compared to wrestling, you will see uh, lactate levels during a fight of maybe 15, 16, maybe 20 what's called millimoles of lactate per liter of blood. I know we're using the metric system here really that that's painful that is true that, that's where you feel like your arms are just going to fall off you feel like you're throwing up and 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 you're dizzy and you have that metally taste in your mouth and and everything bad you remember from really hard training you'll probably sit around 15 millimoles per liter right a rower you will spend almost the entire 2k race at around 27 to 30 millimoles per liter 
that's the only sport when they, where they go so high. And it's actually been said is that when you do uh, studies at the university, testing lactate threshold and maximum capacity for handling lactate, they will usually stop you if you haven't, if you haven't stopped, they will stop you at around 30, 31 millimoles because that's where it starts to get lethal, right? And think about that. A rower will sit right at the, that edge and they're not, when they're done, they're not going to, they're, they're not rolling around on the floor because they're on the water. They're simply just sitting and breathing in their, uh, in their scholar. So that's, that's something that's trainable, but it's not trainable without that mental fortitude that you were talking about before. It's, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and I, I definitely recommend people people try it out. It's definitely an experience to to know what that feels like, but make sure that uh, they get some kind of competent instruction first, because I've seen I've seen people using Concept Twos uh, at public gyms you know, it's just basically doing bicep curls, sitting in place and, and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so uh, before we get out of here, uh, we spent a majority of uh, this episode talking about cardiovascular strength. Um, I want to talk a little bit about something that's talked a lot about in traditional martial arts, which is the uh, tendon training, tendon strength, which, you know, most people, when they think about, you know, uh, training their, their power, they think about training the muscles, they think about, do, you know, doing a lot of normal gym stuff. Why is, ten so why is training the tendons important and how can we train the tendons to improve athletic performance? That's a, you hit on another peeve of mine and something that I'm, so fascinated by and it's probably also one of the things that that where i realize is that martial artists uh, most martial artists at least they have a they have an advantage in that uh, in that area because basically um in order to provide a little bit of background and i know we're short of time here but the tendon is so important because the tendon is what attaches the muscle to the bone so you have a muscle then there's the tendon and then the tendon attaches to the bone, right? When the muscle contracts, it pulls on the tendon and that makes the bone move around the joint, right? So the thing is, is that um, for aesthetics, yes, you want to focus on uh, building the big muscle and all of that. That's the whole bodybuilding aspect. But for sport performance, for martial arts, for, for anything else, then what you got to be aware of is that the muscle will grow much faster both in size and in force generation capacity than the tendon will. So that means that there has to be some sort of breaking mechanism put on the muscle because if the muscle contracts at let's say, uh, let's say uh, 100 pounds of, of contractile force, but the tendon can only handle maybe 50 pounds of force. Then the nervous system, which is basically the, the breaking mechanism here, is going to say, hey, in order for you not to injure yourself, I'm going to turn down that mus muscular output so the tendon doesn't break. So even if the muscle contracts at 100 pounds, it will probably only transfer about 30 pounds of force through that tendon because we need also a safety margin, right? So if the, if, if the tendon will break at 50 pounds, it'll probably turn the force transfer all the way down to 30 pounds through it right and that's a huge discrepancy so if you got a hundred pounds of uh, force capacity in the muscle but only 30 pounds gets through it 
then you have a deficit of 70 pounds, right? That means that your muscle is wasting 70 pounds, basically, or you're wasting in that. So can you imagine if you could increase your punching power or speed by 70%, right? That would be huge. So this is actually why I'm so interested in tendon, in tendon training, because if we can target tendons and stimulate those to grow at a slightly faster rate, that means that we can even out the discrepancy between the muscle and the tendon, which means that we will have the nervous system, the nervous system will allow more of the force being transferred through it. So that basically leads to, okay, so how do we basically train our tendons? Tendons are, are not that responsive uh, of strength training as the muscles are. Um, and the thing is with tendons is that um, they uh, also needs to be, they need to be stimulated from various angles. And this may also be one of the reasons why why people from martial arts, they get into much more, let's say, compromised positions or different positions that the normal person in the gym will do, right? So, and especially like we've, um, like we've talked about so many times is that, and especially in Kung Fu, is that you do all sorts of not only flexion and extension, but you also do a lot of twisting and turning and stuff like that. And all of those positions, they pull on the structure, they pull on the structural tissue from all different directions. That basically means that already by, by forcing your joints to be in awkward positions, you're stretching on the tendons in directions that are not being addressed in the gym. And that creates new growth because that's a new stimulus. And then there's the other aspect of it. And actually, this is something um, that I know we've also talked about extensively. You'll see those old pictures of Bruce Lee doing those, uh, those isometric uh, exercises where he pushes against the bar and, and stuff like that. He was very smart. He did that intuitively, um, I suspect. Uh, because what isometrics does is that it basically picks up the slack of the tendon and, and starts to load it continuously. And when you load something isometrically, you cannot, um, the, the short impulse, you're kind of overriding the nervous system in that point and telling it keep pu pushing force through the tendon because you're constantly keeping the tension engaged, right? And that basically means that by doing that, you're also creating a growth stimulus that's very much targeted the, um, the soft tissue being the tendons. And where do we see a lot of isometrics and, and, and twisted positions? Well, we see that in most martial arts, right? You see it in wrestlers as well because they get into all these, these compromised, twisted, turned, flexed, extended positions. And oftentimes they'll have to generate some isometric force in there as well. And that is one of the, the keys of developing healthy, both healthy joints, but also very strong tendons. Uh, and I think it's tremendously overlooked in, um, in, in, in the sports industry and in, in sports training in general. I definitely think that, that, that if we took um, a group of high-level martial artists and compared them to a high-level group of, of some other sport, and we've used ultrasound to look at the tendons, I have no doubt who will come out on top in terms of having the biggest and strongest tendons. 
that's definitely going to be the martial artists. Right. Interesting. I, I always wondered too, because uh, in my 18 years of teaching martial arts, I've had a number of bodybuilders that have uh, trained with me. And it's interesting to compare um, the like movement capabilities of bodybuilders with, for example, dancers who can, you can tell a dancer to do anything and they'll be able to do it. Uh, bodybuilder, not always. Although I do actually have uh, a private student who's a former Mr. Universe and he, uh, but he also has very good movement training because he also did a lot of body weight stuff in addition to his bodybuilding routine. But he has the one thing that I have, I have never seen a high level bodybuilder who didn't have it, which is that he tore his bicep, his bicep tendon ripped, and then the bicep goes all the way up into the shoulder and, and then they have to have the surgery or, but he even told me that when his bicep ripped, he saw it and he continued his set of curls afterwards anyway, which is like, how crazy is that? Now, is that an example of the muscle of, uh, output far exceeding what the tendon is able to handle is that basically the classic example that is uh, that is spot on that that's basically what well maybe not the the part where he continued to do his bicycle afterwards but, but, but the whole thing is is that when you train and especially at least some bodybuilders they they, they get fired up with a lot of adrenaline right uh when they go and train which basically puts a damper on the protective mechanism from the nervous system, right? Because we've all heard the stories of if you're really in trouble and you're fighting for your life, you can, you can summon some strength that you have never seen before. That's basically adrenaline. That, that, that's not something magical. That's basically adrenaline that's just taking over, right? Um, and usually what happens in such, in, in such cases is, is that because he's so maybe fired up uh, high levels of adrenaline, high levels of arousal, and he just wants to really hit his biceps hard, then uh, maybe the nervous system is not as, maybe was not as good at protecting him. So basically more of the muscular force that was generated was actually transferred through the tendon and the tendon couldn't hold it. So it basically just ripped. Um, there's another aspect of that, and it's not because uh, we're going to go deep into it, but bodybuilders, at least at high levels, they use some sort of, let's call it uh, chemical enhancements, right? Spicy and, vitamins, we like to call them. Yeah, so, so they like the sauce, right? And, uh, and, 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 and what, uh, what the sauce basically does is that it, it, it targets the anabolic receptors that are in the muscles. So now we have a situation where the muscular tissue will grow even faster than the tendon tissue. So now we're creating this huge deficit between mus uh, tendon, uh, muscle capacity and tendon capacity that grows, right? And that just sets you up for injury. And that's, why, that's also one of the reasons why you'll see uh, people who strength train a lot, they'll usually have a lot of, if not fully torn, either biceps or pecs or similar they they will have they will have semi-torn uh soft tissue um and uh it can be both the, the the chemical enhancements but probably also uh the uh the huge rushes of adrenaline that they put themselves through and if they don't specifically train the tendons to handle that and focus on that then at one point that stuff is going to happen Sure, sure. So uh, one question that's been burning on my mind is, uh, how come you haven't been on Joe Rogan yet? 
<laughs> I think uh, given given your expertise and given the kind of things he likes to talk about, uh, sometimes he has some really great guests on there and he, they talk about obviously training and fitness and cardio and stuff. And sometimes they have great conversations and sometimes, you know, and I'm not an expert. I've just been lucky enough to hang out with some very high level experts like you and Dr. Mark Chang. And sometimes I hear some of his guests say things where I just go, when is he going to get Kenneth J-, uh, J on? Because I think you could, you could, I think you would do an amazing episode with him. I definitely want to put in a bid for you to get on the Joe Rogan podcast. So we, we if anyone who listens to our podcast somehow knows uh, the management over there, we got to get, we got to get you on there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. I would love to be on the Joe Rogan show. I, uh, I really like to listen to um, whatever he puts out. Um, and uh, it would be a, be a great platform and I would love to, uh, to share uh, the stuff that I know something about with, uh, with this listeners as well. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. So uh, wrapping up here. So if our listeners want to find out more about you, uh, where should they go? Well, uh, right now uh, you can look me up on Facebook. Um, basically, uh, Dr. Kenneth J. Uh, same, uh, same Instagram handle. Uh, and if you want to check out my website, it's cardio coach sports science. Uh, it's a long URL, but cardio coach sports science. We'll put, it, we'll put it in the link uh, when we post this. Awesome. Yeah, cool. And that is just basically uh, reach out to me and I'll love to hear from, uh, from your listeners as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I had so much fun. And even though uh, we've copied uh, uh, a lot of the topics we've talked about face to face here, I could listen to you talk for hours about this stuff. And I, what, by the way, while you were talking, if you saw me looking away, it was because I was writing notes because it, these are all things I'm going to be uh, looking up and also reminding myself to uh, uh, absolutely fascinating, really cool to talk to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope to see you again at some point in the future long but let's see what happens and i can't wait to uh, to pick your brain more as well because i learned from you as well uh the talks that we have whenever i visit your fantastic school in uh city wing chung in manhattan i just love the time that we get to spend together uh, and thank you so much for the t-shirt as well I hey, this comes from the hard shirt on awesome awesome cool 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 uh, well, uh, uh, Dr. J, as I like to call you, <laughs> with no relation to, to, to the basketball player, uh, uh, um, was absolutely fascinating. We got to do this again, and I uh, hope you're doing well, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com slash support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com slash support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the Dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. 
The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!